So I, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning and then a little bit from a little further in, not very far. This, the novel, um, which is set in Cambridge and is, is, uh, is, about, uh, is told by a woman named Nora Eldridge, who is an, an elementary school teacher uh, at, at a fictional public school, which one reviewer called Shady Hill. No, um, a, a fictional public school in, in Cambridge. And um, she's somebody who, who uh, wanted uh, to, she wa when she was young, there were two things that she really wanted in some uh, passionate but, but not necessarily practical way. And those two things were she wanted to have children and she wanted to make art. And, uh, and she has children in the sense that she's a school teacher, so every day she has her children, um, but every day she goes home alone. And she, she makes art, but not as a career, as a hobby in her uh, spare room. And, uh, and when she's narrating the novel, she's, she, she's telling it when she's 42, it's about her 37th year, which is a year in which a boy uh, named Reza Shahid shows up in her classroom. Uh, he is in her third grade, third grade classroom, and he's, he's uh, visiting for the year. His father is on a fellowship at Harvard, and it turns out that his mother is an artist. And they've come from Paris. His father's Lebanese, his mother's Italian, they're cosmopolitan. And, um, and having thought that all her, her, her dreams had passed her by, she's, she has a year of curiosity and wonder and discovery and joy and um, fun and, uh, and, and a feeling that everything is still ahead. And uh, then at the end of the year, they, uh, they pack up and go back to Paris because that's what they were always going to do. So, uh, so, so if you've heard uh, anything about Nora and you've heard that she's angry, some, some people have heard that she's a little angry. She's, she's not angry the whole book through. She's angry, uh, she's angry in the telling, so she's angry at the beginning because it's told, told retrospectively, and she's angry at the end, but in the middle, she's full of, full of um, it's, it's a good time, she's having fun. And, and uh, you know, I think she's, she's angry in proportion to how, uh, how much is at stake for her. Uh, the, the idea, it, it's really sort of her, sen her whole sense of herself and her sense of possibility in her life is what's at stake for her. Um, I can go on endlessly, but I will just read you a little bit and then we can talk afterwards. There's a little swearing, I'm sorry. On the radio they bleep it, but I can't do that. <laughs> How angry am I? You don't want to know. Nobody wants to know about that. I'm a good girl. I'm a nice girl. I'm a straight A, straight-laced, good daughter, good career girl, and I never stole anybody's boyfriend, and I never ran out on a girlfriend, and I put up with my parents' shit and my brother's shit, and I'm not a girl anyhow. I'm over 40 fucking years old, and I'm good at my job, and I'm great with kids, and I held my mother's hand when she died after four years of holding her hand while she was dying, and I speak to my father every day on the telephone every day, mind you, and what kind of weather do you have on your side of the river? Because here it's pretty gray and a bit muggy, too. It was supposed to say great artist on my my tombstone, but if I died right now, it would say, such a good teacher, daughter, friend instead. And what I really want to shout and want in big letters on that grave too is fuck you all. Don't all women feel the same? The only difference is how much we know we feel it, how in touch we are with our fury. We're all furies except the ones who are too damn foolish. And my worry now is that we're brainwashing them from the cradle and in the end even the ones who are smart will be too damn foolish. What do I mean? 
I mean, the second graders at Appleton Elementary, sometimes the first graders even, and by the time they get to my classroom, to the third grade, they're well and truly gone. They're full of Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and French manicures and cute outfits, and they care how their hair looks in the third grade. They care more about their hair or their shoes than about galaxies or caterpillars or hieroglyphics. How did all that revolutionary talk of the 70s land us in a place where being female means playing dumb and looking good? Even worse on your tombstone than dutiful daughter is looked good. Everyone used to know that. But we're lost in a world of appearances now. That's why I'm so angry, really. Not because of all the chores and all the making nice and all the duty of being a woman, or rather of being me, because maybe these are the burdens of being human. Really, I'm angry because I've tried so hard to get out of the hall of mirrors this sham and pretend of the world, or of my world, on the east coast of the United States of America in the first decade of the 21st century. And behind every mirror is another fucking mirror, and down every corridor is another corridor. And the fun house isn't fun anymore, and it isn't even funny, but there doesn't seem to be a door marked exit. At the fair each summer when I was a kid, we visited the fun house with its creepy grinning plaster face two stories high. You walked in through its mouth between its giant teeth along its hot pink tongue. Just from that face you should have known. It was supposed to be a lark, but it was terrifying. The floors buckled or they lurched from side to side and the walls were crooked and the rooms were painted to confuse perspective. Lights flashed, horns blared in the narrow, vibrating hallways lined with fattening mirrors and elongating mirrors and inside-out, upside-down mirrors. Sometimes the ceiling fell or the floor rose or both happened at once and I thought I'd be squashed like a bug. The fun house was scarier by far than the haunted house, not least because I was supposed to enjoy it. I just wanted to find the way out. But the doors marked exit led only to further crazy rooms, to endless moving corridors. There was one route through the fun house, relentless to the very end. I've finally come to understand that life itself is the fun house. All you want is that door marked exit, the escape to a place where real life will be, and you can never find it. No, let me correct that. In recent years, there was a door, there were doors, and I took them, and I believed in them, and I believed for a stretch that I'd managed to get out into reality. And God, the bliss and terror of that, the intensity of that, it felt so different, until I suddenly realized I'd been stuck in the fun house all along. I'd been tricked. The door marked exit hadn't been an exit at all. I'm not crazy. Angry, yes, crazy, no. My name is Nora Marie Eldridge, and I'm 42 years old, which is a lot more like middle age than 40 or even 41. Neither old nor young, I'm neither fat nor thin, tall nor short, blonde nor brunette, neither pretty nor plain. Quite nice looking in some moments, I think, is the consensus, rather like the heroines of Harlequin romances read in quantity in my youth. I'm neither married nor divorced, but single, what they used to call a spinster, but don't anymore because it implies that you're dried up and none of us wants to be that. Until last summer, I taught third grade at Appleton Elementary School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and maybe I'll go back and do it again. I just don't know. Maybe instead, I'll set the world on fire. I just might. Be advised that in spite of my foul mouth, I don't swear in front of the children except once or twice when a rogue shit has emerged, but only sotto voce and only an extremist. If you're thinking, how can such an angry person possibly teach young children, let me assure you that every one of us is capable of rage and that some of us are prone to it but that in order to be a good teacher, you must have a modicum of self-control, which I do. I have more than a modicum. I was brought up that way. Second, I'm not an underground woman harboring resentment for my miseries against the whole world. 
or rather, it's not that I'm not in some sense an underground woman, aren't we all, who have to cede and swerve and step aside unacknowledged and unadmired and unthanked? Numerous in our 20s and 30s were positively legion in our 40s and 50s, but the world should understand, if the world gave a shit, that women like us are not underground. No Ralph Ellison basement full of light bulbs for us. No Dostoevskian metaphorical subterra. We are always upstairs. We're not the mad women in the attic. They get lots of play one way or another. We're the quiet woman at the end of the third floor hallway whose trash is always tidy, who smiles brightly in the stairwell with a cheerful greeting, and who, from behind closed doors, never makes a sound. In our lives of quiet desperation, the woman upstairs is who we are, with or without a goddamn tabby or a pesky lolloping Labrador, and not a soul registers that we are furious. We're completely invisible. I thought it wasn't true, or not true of me, but I've learned I'm no different at all. The question now is how to work it, how to use that invisibility to make it burn. So she's a little crabby. <laughs> but you know, we're all a little crabby sometimes. <laughs> From the beginning then, but briefly. I was born into an ordinary family in a town an hour up the coast from Boston called Manchester by the Sea. The 60s were barely a ripple there at the end of the Boston commuter line. It must have been our perfect beach, called Singing Beach on account of its fine, pale, musical sand, but perhaps also because it is so widely and so long lauded that afforded me my delusions of grandeur. It makes sense that if you stand almost daily in the middle of a perfect crescent of shore with a vista open to eternity, you'll conceive of possibility differently from someone raised in a wooded valley or among the canyons of a big city. Or maybe more likely they came from my mother, fierce and strange and doomed. I had a mother and a father, a big brother, eight years bigger than me though, so we hardly seemed of the same family. By the time I was nine, he was gone and a tortoiseshell cat zipper, and a mangy, runty mutt from the shelter named Sputnik who looked like a wig of rags on sticks. His legs were so scrawny we marveled they didn't snap. My father worked in insurance in Boston. He took the, the train each morning, the 752, and he proceeded very respectably, but apparently not very successfully because my parents never seemed to have money to spare. My mother stayed home and smoked cigarettes and hatched schemes. For a while, she tested cookbook recipes for a publisher. She was paid for it, and for months, she fed us elaborate three- and four-course meals that involved eggy sauces and frequently, as I recall, Marsala wine. Briefly and humiliatingly for me, she fancied herself a clothes designer and spent several months at the sewing machine in the spare room in a swoon of tobacco smoke. Her output was at once unusual and not unusual enough. She made paisley jersey mini-dresses for girls my, of my size, not at first glance dissimilar to those off the rack, but then you'd see she'd cut portholes around the midriff and edged them with rickracks so that a girl's white tummy would peer through, or that she'd made the sleeves so they attached not with seams, but with a flurry of ribbons, a circle of multicolored bows that would look bedraggled after a single washing. Cheerfully impractical, she ran up at least two dozen outfits of various designs the summer I was nine, and then took a booth from which to flog them at the fair in a neighboring town. I refused to sit with her there in full view on a brilliant Saturday in July, and went instead with my father on a tedious round of errands, the cleaners, the liquor store, the hardware store, stifling in the car, but immeasurably relieved not to risk being seen by my schoolmates under my mother's hideous handmade sign. My mother was a beloved embarrassment. She sold a few of the clothes, but clearly felt the experiment hadn't sufficiently succeeded, and the suitcase was stowed, unemptied, in the attic. 
Before too long, the sewing machine also migrated upward, and my mother entered one of her darker phases until the next eureka moment struck. Certainly, my mother, unlike my father, instilled in me the sense that unpredictability was essential. Not to be like your neighbor, that's everything, she would say. And because of this, because of the bright flame of her, it took me a long time to realize that she, too, was cautious and bourgeois, frightened of the unknown and so uncertain of herself that she could hardly bear to make a mark. How could she, else could she have stayed resolutely wedded to the ordinary, to my father, to the carefully ordained and unchanging routines of Manchester by the sea? And it explains much about me, too, about the limits of my experience, about the fact that the person I am in my head is so far from the person I am in the world. Nobody would know me from my own description of myself, which is why, when called upon, rarely I grant, to provide an account, I tailor it, I adapt. I try to provide an outline that can, in some way, correlate to the outline that people understand me to have, that I suppose I actually have at this point. But who I am in my head, very few people really get to see that. Almost none. It's the most precious gift I can give to bring her out of hiding. Maybe I've learned it's a mistake to reveal her at all. So from our ordinary family in our ordinary house, a center entrance colonial with its potted geraniums on the stone porch and its charmingly untended yew hedges nibbling at the windows, I made my way out into the ordinary world to the local elementary school, the local middle school, the local high school. I was popular enough, universally liked by the girls, even liked when noticed by the boys, though not in a romantic way. I was funny, haha, not peculiar. It was a modest currency like pennies, pedestrian, somewhat laborious, but a currency nonetheless. I was funny in public, most often at my own expense. Education was different then, and I was good at it, and so I skipped grade nine, went straight from eight to ten, which was socially a little tough at first, and sealed my fate as a disastrous math student. I never learned the quadratic formula and other important tips from ninth grade math, just like I missed the early dating essays and the classes in how to navigate a school dance. At the time, though, I wasn't embarrassed about any of this, not embarrassed to be thrown sink or swim into the second year of high school without so much as a map to the cafeteria or a primer on how cliques were lined up or even a list of the names of my new classmates, all of whom knew one another and some of whom knew me as their little sister's friend. No, I was proud because I knew my parents were proud because it was an elevation and a revelation of the fact that I was special. I'd long suspected it and now I knew for sure I was destined. When you were a girl, you never let on that you are proud or that you know you're better at history or biology or French than the girl who sits beside you and is 18 months older. Instead, you gush about how good she is at putting on nail polish or at talking to boys, and you roll your eyes at the vaunted difficulty of the history biology French test and say, oh my God, it's gonna be such a disaster, I am so scared. And you put yourself down whenever you can so that people won't feel threatened by you, so they'll like you because you wouldn't want them to know that in your heart you are proud and maybe even haughty and are riven by thoughts the revelation of which would show everyone how deeply not nice you are. You learn a whole other polite way of speaking to the people who mustn't see you clearly and you know you get told by others that they think you're really sweet and you feel a thrill of triumph. Yes, I'm good at history, biology, French and I'm good at this too. It doesn't ever occur to you as you fashion your mask so carefully that it will grow into your skin and graft itself come to seem irremovable. 
when you look at the boy, Josh, who skipped the grade alongside you, and you see him wiping his nose upon his sleeve, and note his physical scrawniness, his chin's bloom of acne next to the other 10th grade boys with broader chests and clear square jaws, when you observe that he still takes his lunch with his old ninth grade friends, all of them boys in black t-shirts with glitter decals across the breast that say KISS or ACDC, all of them with pimply chins and wet lips and hair as lank as seaweed, you cannot see any triumph in him at all. He seems clearly to have lost, to be lost, to be a loser. Because anybody knows that in the challenge you were given when you skipped a grade, social success, modest social success to be sure, but still, was half the battle. When Frederica Beatty invites you to join her birthday party, a sail on her father's boat with six other girls, two of whom are from the most popular set, you feel pity for Josh, who will never taste such nectar. But wait. Nobody ever pointed out that Josh, in his obliviousness, was utterly happy. He'd already taught himself the quadratic formula. He would not be stymied in any area of academic advancement. In fact, he would go on to MIT and eventually become a neurobiologist with a lab largely funded by the NIH and a vast budget at his disposal. He would marry a perfectly attractive, if rather knock-kneed woman, and spawn several knock-kneed, bespectacled nerds, replicas of himself. It will all work out more than fine for him, and he will never for a second suspect that it could have been otherwise. He will not know there was a social test. He will not know that he failed it. No, a sail on Fred Frederica Beatty's father's boat was an honor that he dreamed not of. And his yen for society, such as it was, was perfectly satisfied by his old clan, now a year behind him. He could no more have fashioned a mask than flown to the moon. And so he remained who he was forevermore. Femininity as masquerade, indeed. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, very, thank you very much, Claire. It was wonderful. Um, I, could, I guess a good place to start would be um, with the title, which uh, you go some way to unpacking in that first chapter a little bit, some of the references Nora's very aware of how she's describing herself as the woman upstairs. Can you maybe tell us a little bit how that, that came about? Um, you know, the, 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 the truth is that that came from me. And not Nora. You know, some things came from Nora. I, the, the, the first chapter really did come like a marble uh, to me. And then I had to figure out who she was and, you know, why she was um, on about it in this way. But, 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 um, but that, you know, that was, that was me. Um, and, and I am, um, you know, what it comes from is, uh, it seems, it seems, uh, it seems so, anytime you explain things, it seems bad. Um, <laughs> but but, but I, um, I, I read Notes from Underground as a senior in high school in a sort of amazing uh, English class where the teacher clearly got to choose. We read 100 Years of Solitude and Walker Percy's The Movie Goer and The Death of Ivan Illich and Hamlet, you know, and, and, uh, and Notes from Underground. And, and every time, each book we read was like fireworks going off in my head. It was incredibly exciting. But I remember thinking about Notes from Underground. How can it be that uh, you're allowed to do this? Wow. You know, you can, you can have a dis, this, this character with his unseemly thoughts behaving so badly, remorseless about his unseemly thoughts, completely in his own head. Um, and, and, and ever after, I loved a ranter. Mm -hmm. Um, I did. I've just always loved a ranter. 
but but the the ranting the ranting girls are thin on the ground. The girls don't rant. There are angry there are angry women characters for sure, but but they tend not to be in first person, or they or they tend to have a, a more uh, uh, controlled delivery, or they um, and 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 the the woman upstairs. I think uh, it was important to me that she isn't she. She, she isn't somebody who you would run into and think, "Oh, wow, she's trouble." Mm -hmm. You know, you you would meet Nora and and, and you would like her, mm -hmm. and she would seem extremely well socialized. She's a wonderful teacher. She's a she's great with the kids. She's great with the parents. She has friends. She's she's healthy. She goes jogging. She takes care of her family. She's a totally successful person. But but this is her interior life. This is what never breaks the surface. And the surface is, she's the woman upstairs. The surface is, she's that nice neighbor. Oh, that nice neighbor. What's her name again? She's that person. Mm. And so there's that, the, the, you know, the, the distinction that, that is raised within it about the mad woman in the attic, this kind of way that, you know, the, the, the angry women, the uh, hysterical or crazy or however, that's, you know, that's been defined, uh, defined in, in, in the history of literature. Here you've got someone who's, I mean, in control of her anger to a degree because she's, she's writing to be angry or she's speaking to be angry. But then, as you say, when she's with her children, there's only a, you know, the occasional swearing sotto voce. Right, yeah. right. She's not, you, you would never pick her out as, a, as an angry person. I, there, there was a, um, when I was working on this novel, I, 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 gave a, I, was, I had a fellowship for a year in Berlin and I gave a reading and, and, the, and the, um, one of the other fellows was a, was a Dutch anthropologist in his 60s and he came up afterwards and he was not a talkative man and I, I was very honored that he came up and he said, I, I, um, he said, I'm so glad you read that. And I, I said, oh, thank you, you know, thank you, why? And he said, you know, I never saw my mother angry. He said, I, um, when I was growing up, she, she was never angry, but, but on Saturday mornings we would have breakfast and then she would go upstairs and clean the house while my father and we children stayed downstairs in the kitchen. And while she was changing the beds and sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets, she would curse at the top of her lungs. She would just be swearing the whole time. And then she would come back down smiling and we would pretend we hadn't heard and, you know, we would go on. And, and, and he said, you know, I think, I think that's, that's my experience of women and anger is that. Um, so I'm glad you wrote this, and and I think, um, I think you know, anger's. It's not like anger's a popular emotion mm -hmm. generally, <laughs> but I think for women, it's a particular. It's it's a particularly thorny. Mm -hmm. well, one of the, the sort of the literary reference I'd, uh, was the. Um, you know, she's talking about being trapped in a fun house, but she's called Nora, and immediately think of Ibsen and, and the, the Doll's House. Doll's house. Was, uh, and, and sort of Ibsen's women could be angry um, on stage in a way that maybe, I mean, was shocking at the time, right? Yes. But, um, uh, and and considered very emancipatory. I mean, uh, when you're when you're making these literary references, how careful are you? I mean, did some of those... Sufficiently careful. <laughs> no, but in terms of the, the... By drawing attention to them, is that a good way of... of, of kind of naturalizing them, if you see what I mean? Well, you know, I, I, I think... Um, I reckon why not, right? Yeah. I reckon why not, you know? Um, to, to, to be honest, I didn't... I hadn't read... I still haven't. I hadn't read it in 15 years. Right. So it was, you know, it was, that's what I mean about insufficiently careful. It was, it was an illusion in the, in the most sort of 
it was there was no um, there was no sort of conscious point-to-point -point correlation or response. You know, my Nora in response to that Nora, it really was just you know. Uh, uh, but but that said, you know, um, there, there are in, 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 in she has she gets in a number of, of, of little references. My editor said, "Are you sure you want to put those in there?" And I said, "Why not?" Like, I feel as though I am always in conversation uh, with those characters and books that, I, that I've read that I carry around in my head. Mm -hmm. It's a constant conversation. Once they're in your head, they're never out of it. Now, it's not as though there's any reference in this book that you need to know in order to make sense of the book. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as though it, it's a sort of trick thing for you to you know, catch, the, catch the reference to this or that. Um, but, but on the other hand, if Nora doesn't, if my character doesn't, if my character is to be real, then I assume that she too has, by the age of 40, a, 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 a sort of uh, pantheon of, of characters who are, who are living with her. And, and so if she, if she alludes to them in some way or other, obviously the Nora, Nora itself is a little bit sure. different yeah. because, you know, but, but, but I think just in, gen in general, I, I feel as though there's some, we live in a time when people feel ashamed about, um, it's, considered, it's considered pretentious, you know, but, but, but actually the truth is that we all carry, whether, whether they're references to, you know, poems or, or books or, or paintings or cinema or, or television or, you know, but each of us is carrying around all of those. Well, and it's, it's what informs her art, right? So that's, that's those, it's a referential relationship to, to Emily Dickinson, Virginia Woolf, Alice Neal and, and Edie Sedgwick. Yeah. That she creates their rooms. Well remembered. <laughs> <laughs> and, and almost the, 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 the way that that becomes a, a subject of, of, of her relationship, not with, with just Serena, her friend, but with, with the husband as well, who, who pays such close attention to them. Right, right. And, mm. and I think there, there's a lot for her, there's a lot of, um, well, for me, mm. a lot of the choices, she, I mean, she's an art for those, she's, she's making, the art that she's making, she's making these little sort of dioramas to do with these, these artists that Duncan just mentioned. So Virginia Woolf and Alice Neal and, and um, Emily Dickinson. Thank you, Emily Dickinson <laughs> and, and Edie Cedric. Hmm. And, and I feel as though that, that I mean, there, I can blab on, there's plenty I could say about, um, about her art and why, why she's doing that, but, but I think it's also the choices are about, um, the choices reflect her understanding of what an artist is, her understanding of what a woman artist is, her understanding of the fate of a woman artist. Um, which isn't good, yeah. um, and and uh, you know, she's not conscious of that mm. Mm. in those choices. She's not, she's not uh, conscious. I don't think of what it reflects about her mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the way that, say, 
Skandar, the, yes. the, the visiting guy, then becomes more conscious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in the typical journalist, academic, interested in, in trends and things, but um, you know, with the flamethrowers and then Siri Husvet's new novel, The Blazing World, is also about a woman artist. It, it seems to be a, a kind of fertile terrain to talk about um, you know, issues of feminism, issues of creativity, and how they're stymied. Um, especially in a world when we're, we're constantly told to be creative and to, to, to be ourselves. And, um, do, you th do you see any reason why that would be a trend? Um, well, the, the honest answer, you know, mm. when, my, when my last book, uh, The Emperor's Children, came out, uh, I remember there was some online exchange where somebody said, why, why, is this, why are all these people graduates of Brown? <laughs> University and and the person replied because they can't be graduates of Yale because she is, <laughs> um, and and, um, and 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 I feel there's some why are they all artists? Mm. Well, because that way they're not writers. Mm. Um, that, that's the most cynical response, but mm -hmm. but that's not fair. Um, surely it is more. Um, there's more to it than that. I mean, I, I certainly think um, that that. The, the the art world is is sort of um, all of the, it does write large mm -hmm. all those questions about creativity and and modishness and um, you know versatility and uh, constraints and you know the the difference between doing it yourself and mm -hmm. and needing it acknowledged and I mean you know it, it's so dramatic it's so extreme in the art world and um, I, I think it is it is alluring. Why everybody all at once? I can't. Mm. I can't say. Mm, mm. I don't know. Do you have a thought? I, I I don't know. I think there's maybe there's something that ties into those those ideas of surfaces and celebrity and the way that that art is made to move even more than any other form through these kind of social processes that then express you know the, the prevailing attitudes. You know, gender biases and things like that. And I think it's it can be a valuable vehicle to that. And the idea of authenticity and right. well, it's mm. so it's so it's so out there in some mm. way that those trends, you know, those issues or whatever might might happen in literature. But mm. but but with art, you literally see them. Mm -hmm. You see mm -hmm. them happening, and you the trend. You know, if you, uh, I, I don't personally go to biennales much, but if you do, <laughs> <laughs> if you do, I think you know mm. you can really if you go over five years, you can really watch a movement. Uh, you know from from the popularity of one thing. I mean, it's like fashion shows. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of larger movements and so forth, I mean, you, you review fiction for New York Review of Books and New York Times, I think, and, okay. and, um, and also you, you're teaching fiction at, at Hunter and is it Yale this semester. So how, how do you feel about the way that young writers are, are approaching their subject? You know... Uh, that's a really good question. Again, I, I'm not sure I have a good answer. It's very interesting. I do feel I'm teaching. I teach graduate students at Hunter, and I've been teaching there for about five years. Mm. And one of the things about uh, I don't know if it's specifically Hunter, but I think it's often in MFA programs in creative writing. Uh, the students mm. tend to be a little bit older, so right. they aren't right out of university. They, they're usually um, anywhere from sort of 27, 28 on on up. Um, and so 
it's, it's teaching the undergraduates, which I haven't done in a while, I'm teaching the undergraduates at Yale, and, and it is very interesting because when you have a, a group of undergraduates writing fiction, you get some other sense of what, um, of, of, of the sort of, maybe it's only of the college that you're teaching at. I remember I, I taught for a semester, this is some time ago, um, I'd been teaching at College Park, Maryland. We were living in D.C., and I went to teach for a semester in Suwannee, Tennessee. And um, all the students in Suwannee, Tennessee, wrote historical fiction and, and with a, a completely different set of cliches from the cliches that the kids in suburban Maryland were using. So they, you know, people had raven locks in, in <laughs> Suwannee, Tennessee. And, um, and, and, it, and it was rather wonderful, but it, but it was... It, 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 all it described was, you know, the culture of, of that particular college in that particular moment. So it may be wrong to generalize, but 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 it is um, it, it is interesting to the undergraduates. Um, I totally feel like a mother. Um, what what I am a mother. But what I discover is uh, it, it, this seems a terrible thing to say. Sexual mores have really changed. <laughs> they just really have changed. So you know, I, I find myself saying. Um, I found myself last week or the week before saying, I said, you know, um, I, I call me old-fashioned, but this is just this reader's experience. So when the narrator realizes that her boyfriend is very happy having uh, sex with her, but he, he doesn't seem to really notice who he's having sex with, I have to say, I said, if that were me, it would be a bummer. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't want, I'm no judgment here, but, but that, that would be a bummer. <laughs> and, and, and it didn't, that didn't seem a given. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't seem a given, which was kind of wild. I, I, I was, you know, so I feel as though that's the sort of thing that you learn about, um, which I don't know is really about what they're writing. <laughs> it's more about what they're doing. Um, but um, but but I do I do feel there's been um, some a word a word dredged up from college. There has been some epistemic shift. I feel as though there has been just in the past four or five years some real shift in the way people young people are, are reading and approaching things and it is really different and I don't have the measure of hmm. I don't have the measure of what people will be writing hmm. how they'll be writing you know I just feel as though it's a very different it, for one thing a very different attention span mm -hmm. and, and there is no people are no longer young people are no longer bored they're never bored mm -hmm. so, so how do you make art mm -hmm. if you're not bored I don't know mm -hmm. it's part of the job <laughs> I think it's a good time to throw open some questions. Anybody want to start us off? Come on, Jimmy, I can see you anxiously. Put, put your friends on the spot. Eh? Yeah. <coughs> you can well, always trust a writer. Well, I, I guess, as I heard you read the introduction to uh, um, the novel, I was wondering um, how if Nora were um, a male, um, she would kind of maybe lose out to remind me of her saga. Just uh, whether uh, you actually see the uh, see the anger she expresses as uh, to define women or contemporary women, or um, being also applicable to men, or could be in the in the masculine persona. That's a, that's a, an interesting. Um, I was, I was <laughs> yeah. Interesting question. Again, tough one. You guys, it's like you planned it. Somebody must have an easy one out there, right? Um, I, I, I mean, I suppose 
my my um, I, I think there are various sources for her um, anger. Suddenly comes to mind uh, the ad in a in a Liverpool train station for a sports store. Now is the winter of our discount tents. Um, the, um, uh, the 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 reason she has various discount tents. She, ha I mean, her The reasons for her discontent are 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 different, and I think some of them are gendered and some of them are not. And so, um, I, I I think that I think that everybody uh, that that mask issue. I think uh, everybody to some extent has to. Fashion of persona. I think the 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 nature of uh, the acculturation of girls and women is 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 different from the acculturation of boys into men, and I think creates a set of problems that then in in this particular configuration where uh, where another sort of central thing in a central element of the book is the artistic gamble. Which I think is a, is an issue for for anyone, regardless of gender. I think you know you you you. It is very difficult to say I I, I want to now spend my life not earning money. Please could you pay me? And I want to sit around doing something that uh, no making something that nobody wants or needs. And that might take me five to ten years. Thanks. It it, it doesn't go over very well for anybody. Um, but I feel as though. So, so I think the, the number of people who are thwarted artists in that sense, who haven't pursued something they wanted to pursue, and, and, it, and indeed it can be art or not art. I mean, the people who for various reasons feel unable to pursue things that they are passionate about, I think that is an ungendered issue. That's across the board. That said, I, I, um, I think the, 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 there are very few templates for, uh, for women of... Uh, as it were, um, single the single-minded artist. Um, very few positive templates, and you know, I, I was having a conversation about this with somebody who pointed out that, you know, Doris Lessing, um, in her youth, left her husband and children, uh, and that hmm. always throughout her life, this in any in any profile of Doris Lessing, this was brought up, and it was not brought up in a. You know, the things you got to do for art isn't that fantastic. It was it was brought up in, you know, just understand that she is a she is a cold and unfeeling uh, bitch. And, and, and I think um, we have we I, I okay okay let's get a little personal here. Hmm. I um not not against you. No 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 I don't know you. But the, but but I was talking to somebody so a few years ago Orhan Pamuk. Gave the what lectures did he give? Tanner, Massey, some like Harvard lectures, right? So he was there for six weeks, and um, he's a he's a very uh, he's a very eccentric man. Um, and there were people who who said, "Oh, I think you know those symptoms are Asperger's symptoms." He was quite rude to a lot of people. He had a he had a habit of going everywhere with a camera, and uh, say at a dinner party, he would just. Instead of talking, he would take pictures. Um, there, was the, uh, there was a dinner party at which I was present um, where uh, one of the guests was Yo-Yo Ma, who, who played uh, as, a, as a gift for uh, Orhan Pamuk, a, a piece of Turkish music. 
Uh, and Mr. Pomek's response was, I hate that composer. I don't like the way you played it. Which, um, of course, you know, it was a, quite a big dinner party, but every, everybody had fallen silent for the... So in which moment, you know, we were all like, does he not know who he is? Does he not know who just played for him? Um, and I was talking, this was some years ago, and I was, met a woman that, who, I, who had been at that dinner and who I hadn't really seen since, and we were talking, and she said, you know, um, I said, he seems so difficult. And she said, you know, but he is a genius. And I just, I guess I have a lot of time for, um, you know, you've got you've to make concessions for geniuses. And I said, really? Because... I'd like to find the woman genius for whom you would make such concessions. And um, that, it may be that you all have in mind, uh, you know, um, women for whom such concessions are made, but I think by and large, you know, the example that I, that I, that I sort of have given before is, is Steve Jobs. Like people impossible to work for, obsessive, demanding, bad-tempered, erratic, but oh, the results, the perfection, oh, at the end of the day, how blissful to work for him. And you try to imagine Stephanie Jobs, right? That lunatic nightmare who shrieked again and then stormed off, right? It, it doesn't, there isn't, a, there isn't an equivalent template. And so I think for, for women who, um, just back to the childhood thing, you know, I have a daughter and a son, and the, and the son He's younger, but okay, the boys go to nursery, the kindergarten and they walk in the door and they hang up their jacket and they say, hey Tom, hey Bob, hey Jack, and they go do Lego in a corner or they build a racetrack and maybe two or three um, work together, but basically they just do their own thing. And for the girls, there's a table in the middle of the room with markers and paper and the girls come to the table and the girls start to draw. And then the girls have a comment about everybody, is that a flower? doesn't look like a flower. Why are you using brown? I don't know any brown. Is it dead? Is your flower dead? Right? And the girl who doesn't come to the table is, is given some leeway to be a tomboy for a while. But eventually, the girl who doesn't come to the table is a failed girl. You have to come to the table. That's not, you know, it's not like God's saying it. It's not like the guys are saying it. The other girls at the table are saying it. I think it's complicated then to be the one who says, you know what, I know you're all drawing at the table or I know you're all having book group, but I'm going to stay in my room and write a novel instead becomes, becomes actually a very difficult thing to do in a, in a gendered way. Like, I think in a, not that it's easy for men, but it's just a different set of, I think it's a different set of challenges. Well, can I follow up on that? Because it feels to me that that was a, one of the things that um, I found percolating both through women upstairs and also in first children. And yet, so you don't engage in any kind of fantasy fulfillment <laughs> whereby women do get to break those rules. Because it felt to me, feels to me like the characters, you know, it's, um, Nora in Woman Upstairs, she's not the crazy woman in the attic. She's just upstairs. Um, she's got some anger, but it's well under control. And it seemed to me that so much of what um, was going on in that novel was her anxiety about whether she was creative or not. As with like many characters in the um, in the Emperor's Children, but it seems to me that the female characters that she does never. I mean that you know her art is this very constrained biography of other controlling kind of biography right. of, of other artists. So where 
you, you want you want the happy the happy no, no, free no, person. No. I think no. Serena. I mean, Serena is more free, in some ways. Her her counterpart. I mean, I think, you know, for me also the. The specific thing of Nora, um, was wanting to write too about the the legacy of. A particular generation, right? So so. Um, and in that sense, she's she is this, almost my age, and um, one year, we got one year difference. So her um, her her in her case, her mother has said to her, right, your financial independence is the most important thing you can do, and um, and that's not very that's not really compatible with exploring your creativity. So. I, for me, at least, that explains a lot of her choices um, and a lot of her hesitation is, is, is some sense um, that in order to be, as it were, liberated and a feminist and free, she has to, she has to have an income. Um, uh, you know, I, my, my mom turned 40 in 1973, which is the year of the female eunuch and the year that Virago Press was founded, and uh, and in that year, you know, my mother uh, had two small children and had been traveling the world uh, on account of her husband's job for a long time already. And I think there are lots of things my mother would have loved to do. Um, and my mother was a passionate feminist, but she was the person standing on the shore watching the boat go, and. She, she was not. She didn't want to sacrifice her family, and she had friends who did sacrifice their families and made other choices. Um, but she, she, she wasn't temperamentally able to do that. And I think um, there's. It's interesting because I talked to women whose mothers, uh, you know, did did sort of. Uh, I'm looking for the the verb emancipate does not seem right, but like who went out and sort of did their thing. Um, and, and that had its complications too. I, I think I think to to be um, to be the the children of that moment carries with it a certain legacy. Um, and I wanted to write partly about that. And I don't think it's a legacy um, with with an enormous uh, in which you know. I mean, I feel I also feel we live in very conservative times. Um, and so I guess the, the wish fulfillment of the of the artists who you know who got the creative people who got to be free. Maybe I have to set it in a different moment in time. But you, were you going to no, say? No, no, no. I was just interested in sort of where you what you what you're thinking was constructing the character in this way and in, and in making her an artist and an artist in that in a in, in a what I saw as a Right. Not, you know, not the classics, but the artist as character who breaks rules, but in fact. But I feel as though um, we, we have daughters almost the same age, and we were talking before about, you know, about what it's like for them. I've, I, look at, I look at my daughter's uh, almost 13, and I, 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 look at, I look at her contemporaries, and there are among them the girls, also the boys, who are entirely themselves. Like, they can't do anything about it, right? They're just so much themselves that 
it's a burden sometimes, it's a blessing other times, but you know, their outline is, is utterly fixed. But that's not most people. And I think most, people, uh, most people's outlines are more malleable and they, they will shape themselves, uh, they will accommodate to, uh, in the hope of, of some kind of survival, as it were. And I think uh, those artists who throw open the doors and, you know, that's, that, there are a few of those, but, but most are not. In the section you read, um, you were talking about Nora sort of in, in high school being constructed from the outside in, um, whereas the nerd guy never got the message. Um, I wonder if you think that that is like a historically kind of, a, like a, a, a construction of subjectivity that depends on a historical moment, or is that open? Because you sort of see her being made, right? right? I, th I think it's, a, I think it's, I think it, in a way, as I was saying, it's partly temperament. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I think society will cons will construct people as much as as much as they can as they will possibly let themselves be constructed. So the only ones who won't be constructed by society are the ones who are, you know, who 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 are just that eccentric. But then I'm curious about the gendering of it, because it was more for her than him. And I wonder, you know, do you think that I think the, you know, it, it's stronger? I think, the, I think it's a different set of expectations. Yeah. Did you read that thing in the New York Times a few weeks ago about, about parents Googling for their children? And um, boy, is my, is my son a genius? Is Googled 125 times for every time it's Googled for a girl? Is that girl fat? <laughs> right? right? Is my girl fat? Is my girl pretty? Right. I, I feel as though <clears throat> it's about it's about um, there's a, there's a there's a sociologist at Harvard um, named Mazarin Banerjee who does um, really fascinating work about our uh, our biases. yeah our unconscious biases and uh, she she started doing it because of the, an interest in the judicial system and whether the judicial system could ever be fair and and it's particularly I, I think about race issues that rather than gender. Um, but it, but but uh, but she she has these tests that you know she'll give she'll give audiences when she speaks and 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 basically uh, what you realize is that your brain has certain expectations that you're not even aware of that makes certain associations difficult to make uh, or certain other associations much easier to make. So for example, if you have a list in you know in which um, African American and CEO. Uh, that is going to take your your mind a second longer to make that association than African American prison, right? That and that's true for you know African Americans as well as whites. So it, it, there there are all these biases of which we're not even aware. And I, I certainly think um, you know think back to Larry Summers at Harvard saying, well women women just can't be great scientists. Sorry. Right, you know, one of my good friends is, is is a physicist at Harvard, and she's a little upset about that. Um, <laughs> but but she's also a single mom, you know. I mean, she's not a single mom, but her husband, a physicist, is Italian, and his his work he's a physicist in Italy. So you know, much of the time she she he's retired now, so now he's here. But at that time, he she was largely a single mom, and um, you, you just do the math, right? I mean, how are you how are you going to if the hours in the day 
and, and your child that goes to school from 8 to 3, and even if you have a babysitter till 7, you're not going to be in the lab till 11 p.m. It's not going to happen. It simply can't. So, so there are all of these um, things that, that don't, that on some intellectual level we know, but that, but, but that translate as an assumption that women aren't good scientists. Well, what if we changed our template of what was expected so that all those men scientists were expected to do the childcare three nights a week, right? Then suddenly the whole thing might look different. So I, th I think, I think um, there's so much that we don't question. Well, the, they they certainly you realize <clears throat> that you might want them to do something and they won't do it. You you do have that problem. They're like they are like children that way. Um, you know, you you they're just not going to do it. And um, and and I think <clears throat> the effort is always to um, to try to follow the. It's, it's, again, it sounds so, but to follow the human truth of something, right? Is if you figure out who someone is, and then you can try to figure out what they will or won't do. Um, and if you don't know what they will or won't do, it might be because you haven't closely enough figured out who they are yet. Um, or it might be because there are a couple of things they might do. Then you get to choose for them. You mentioned um, the relationship. elaborate on that, um, especially since I think a lot of members of my generation are not being as bored for, um, you know, various reasons. I think technology plays a really big role in that. Art of any kind is superfluous. I mean, it's also essential, but, but it is superfluous. It is a, it is, it is a, an extra thing. And, um, when there's no time for the superfluous, then there's no time for art. Art, art is, 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 is like, um, you know, it's, it's the strange formations that, that uh, arise out of uh, not a vacuum, but a space. There has to be a space. Uh, I, I, I was just um, I was just on this uh, little flight to Ohio in this little itty bitty plane, and um, I didn't like it very much, and um, it was a little bumpy, and um, and so I you know I I, I I I sort of stopped reading, and then I was kind of staring at the ceiling and a little at the window at the clouds, and and all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you know, I thought, oh, there's an essay I want to write. And, 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 and then, you know, not that I wrote the essay, but then I was taking it. And then, and then related to that, there'd be another essay. And by the time we landed in Columbus, I had, you know, a whole um, book of essays. Not written, but, you know, potential. Um, but that's because I was stuck somewhere doing nothing. Um, and, and, and it is... We all have um, 
everybody's creative in some way, right? And, and some people want to write, and some people want to make art, and some people want to develop apps, and some people, you know, want to garden, and some people are great cooks, and some, I mean, everybody has some expression, some outlet of their creativity. But if you're working until 9 o'clock at night, and you're a great cook, you're probably still going to eat takeout because you're not going to you're not going to be thinking up a great meal to prepare at nine and eat at eleven thirty. It's not going to happen. By the same token, unless you have a space, you you won't even know what stories you want to you might want to tell, if that makes sense. And then to get that thing of getting to know the characters, you 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 got to be hanging out with them, doing nothing, right? They're not. It's not like the my daughter's on Instagram. It's like, as my husband said, it's like being a customs officer. She has to spend all this time like, 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 right? Like it just takes up a huge amount of time. And, 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 and it, it's not as these, you know, as she's putting the little thumbs up on all the little pictures, that's, that's, that's not a time when she's, and I sometimes say, why don't you, you take some pictures and post them, you know? Does that make, does that answer? Oh, Diego. Following up on the, on the creative space question, um, it, it, it seems to me that, um, well, my question is about creating creative space for yourself um, and, and in your work. And um, it occurs to me that um, if one creates space and time to create, you can also paint yourself into a corner where it becomes such a self-conscious act of creating space to work that you can't get anything done. And then other times, like in the plane, suddenly you have this idea of, of you've mapped out a, a whole um, collection of essays. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just how that space manifests itself for you. Right. Well, I think you know one of the things that's a problem is that when you create space in that way, you feel like you, you're not allowed to be bored in it. You're supposed to be productive, right? You're, you, you, I've, got, I've, got, I've got some time. I've got my desk. As soon as you have kids, right? Like I've got some time. I've got some, and and the clock is ticking, and 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 you know that's that's the loudest thing that you hear, and then you you you're just the idea that you would sort of sit there and kind of stare at the ceiling and twirl your pencil, like forget about it, and and then there's the frustration, I you know of of of, of what you failed to do in the time you set aside for yourself. But I think you know to come back to what you were raising, Carol. I think one of the reasons that my um, that I have these tentative sort of failed characters, if you will, is that, that I'm incredibly bad at, um, at, at making the space. And um, I'm incredibly bad at it. And, uh, and interestingly, my husband is bad at it, too. We're both really bad at it. Um, and I don't think that being good at it... Uh, necessarily m makes your work good, right? I think there are people who are good at making the space, but so what? At least I hope. Um, but, but I think at some level, it, it, the, um, there's a new novel by, uh, by Jenny Offal called Department of Speculation. I don't know, um, she, she, her first novel came out about 15 years ago, and this one's just coming out now. And it's, it's written in sort of fragmented, style, but, but it's about a, a, a mother with a small child who wants to write um, and it isn't autobiographical. She says, even though she is a mother with a small child who wants to write, 
but but there is a thing about about the time, you know, and she sort of does the math, you know, 22, you know, three hours of this and five hours of this and, you know, 60 hours in this amount of, you know, and, and then and then says, you do the math. And, and I think um, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to how, how to not be self-conscious. I don't have an answer on how to make time better. Well, say no, right? I heard Russell Banks speaking, and he said, I've turned 70. He said, no more introductions, no more... Uh, you know, no more reviews, no more answering email before 6 p.m., no more picking up the phone before 6 p.m. He said, there just isn't time. Death is too close. There's too much I want to do. And I feel like we should all take a leap. Can you just um, talk a little bit about how an art critic decides what is good art or worthy art? Somewhere along the line, Serena has decided that she was a good artist. But I felt that more wasn't able to think that she could pass that test, whatever that test is, because she was, quote, a school teacher and she didn't have the wide variety to make an artist, and she would be looked down and she didn't want to risk that assessment if, like, a uh, friend. Right. Right. I think, I think, I wish I could tell you how, an art, how, how those art critics decide. Because they make or break people. Absolutely. And it's totally subjective. Absolutely. No, I, I mean, I, I, I know of um, instances, I, I, I'm friendly with it, I haven't seen her in a while, but friendly with a woman who, uh, who is the curator now at the ICA. And, um, and I think, you know, completely passionate about contemporary art and very involved, but I think she's also very aware um, that when she turns and smiles on somebody, what that means. It, it means something enormous. In, it, and it is very different from um, publishing a book, right? Because just way more books get published, and there isn't. It's true, you know. There are there are books that have a huge amount of money behind them, and other books that are published in a small way. But there's there's always the the, the wonderful Paul Harding moment, right? Where where his novel Tinkers is, you know, wins a big prize. It's published in the small arty press, and then he wins a big prize, and 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 that's possible. Whereas I feel if you have if you have a show in a gallery on Prospect Street in Somerville, um, it's unlikely to make the front page of the New York Times, right? It's just not. There's no. That's not going to happen. So, so there's very much a hierarchy of, of how it how it works, and I don't. Um, I think there is this issue of fashion. You know, uh, one, I have a I have a very dear friend who's an artist, and she jokingly said, "This is a few years ago, and probably the fashion has changed." But she said, "You know, we have a group of friends who have a secret figurative drawing meeting. We don't tell anybody about it because it's so unfashionable. You know, that if anybody knew we were drawing figures, we would be ostracized." Right? I mean, um, as I say, that may that may no longer be so. Maybe they can meet in the open now. They can come out of the closet. But but I think it, you know, and it really does. Um, it really does shift, and 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 it, especially in this time of, of of such a visual, we live in such a visually mediated uh, culture. I think it's it's there's a particular there's a particular shape or formation, a way that things go, things that are that that look good online, or or, or that you know film. You know, if you think of the rise of, of, of film in, in art making, um, part of it is, uh, at, at some point, you know, when first people in the 70s and 80s, when people were making uh, art, art films, you had to go to the museum 
to see it, and it was quite difficult. It was sort of inaccessible in some sense, and part of the um, allure of it was that. And, and now, of course, you can have the film on your phone and watch it on the bus on the way home, and it's just a very, I mean, that's a whole, there must be some art artists and art historians who can sort of take over here, but that whole thing of the uniqueness of a work of art versus versus the the uh, I also masculine production. That you uh, put her portrayal, her portrayal uh, in a video in contemporary society. That, that was well, I mean, the, in part, the dissemination of which is potentially infinite. I, I write about books. I don't write about. I'm not an art critic, no, I'm a, but, but a book critic. Yeah, as a. Because yeah, you mentioned that you have done some reviews. Um, and so, does that. How do you keep that line so that you don't write knowing what an art critic might. Uh, excuse me, a, a, a reviewer might be thinking wanting to get from an author? Well. Do you know any prominent reviewers? <laughs> I'm, I'm married to one, eh? Yeah. Um, I, and I was about to say a sort of terrible thing, which is, I can't say that. <laughs> I, I'm, but I, I guess I, I it's, it's, it's difficult to ex explain, but it seems so separate. It seems so separate. And um, I think as a reviewer, I'm often learning when I'm reading other people's work and I'm learning um, how, what choices people have made and, and you know, the, the wonderful thing that Truffaut started out as a, as a film critic and then he said, as, before he was a film critic, he just went to the movies all the time and then he decided he'd better make them because he said the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, it'd be better if you filmed it from this angle, it'd be better if you did this. You know, I think there's some version of that that you, that, that, you know, you do, um, you do ha have to, as, as a reviewer, the hope is that you're approaching um, a work of art and, and, and this is a teacher also, and, and, and trying to extrapolate what its platonic version might be and, and compare that work of art to its platonic version rather than to the version you might have done. <laughs> it's not very helpful to, you know, to be suggesting, well, you know, I think it'd be better if you, you know, wrote sentences like mine, or I think it'd be better if you, you know, no. You have to be trying to figure out what that person was trying to do and, and, and see how close they came to doing what they were trying to do. Um, but you can learn a lot from that. But it seems, it does seem a really separate, just almost a separate part of your brain. Um, the, the other part is, you know, one of the things that's sort of crazy about teaching writing and talking about teaching writing is that it's all bollocks really because when you're writing you're just doing it when you're writing it's like being a kid you know you're just doing it and and that's why it's that's why you want to do it is because it is it is it is exactly the same joy as when you're playing a pretend game as a seven-year-old and um, you don't notice five hours going by and you really think that you're in a 
you know, in a in an RAF plane over over Berlin in 1942, right? And you know, and there they are, and you're shooting out of that. Like it really is that. And when it's going well, it's really that. And and so anything that anybody ever does to talk about it is sort of after the fact. And and um, and it's all sorts of other things too, because I. You know, you're, you're paying attention also to language, so there's some musical component, and and uh, both in terms of the words themselves, but also in terms of the, the the arc or the structure of a story. I mean, all of these. It's just, it's 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 some very unintellectual process. It's a very visceral thing, and so then revision has to have some intellectual component. One hopes, right? There has to be some thing when you go back to try to make it work better. Um, and even sometimes to figure out what you were doing, which you didn't know you were doing, and see you know, how that can work out. But it, but, but, but it does seem really separate from a, the writing itself seems really separate from a critical, from a critical eye. OK, maybe one last one. I guess one, one last question I, I had was um, about whether you consider yourself a wholly American writer with your background and uh, th whether that also facilitates you to maybe step outside slightly at times. Um, I mean, this book again offers a, a critique of certain aspects of um, you know, post 9-11 American insularity. Um, do, you, do you, yeah, how do you, how do you feel yourself? You know, it used, to be a big, it used to be a big issue for me when I was young. I, I think I, um, it was a time when there was much talk of the great American novel, and I thought, well, I can't possibly write the great American novel. But, but again, you know, times, times change, and, and um, I think even in that 20 years, um, a sense of, of what an American novel is has really uh, opened up and evolved. And, um, and everybody's a mongrel now. I, I, I think the great thing, um, the great thing about this country is that you don't have to um, be anything specific to be part of it. I mean, it, it, I, I, it, I'm not a, you know, I don't go around saying, I'm an American, I'm an American. Um, but, but my other, I, my other, uh, my other nationalities, I have three, and the others are Canadian and, and French, and I grew up partly in Canada, and, and, and you know, I have a lot of love for Canada, um, but I'm never Canadian enough. Insuffisamment Canadien. If I were sufficiently Canadian, I would have chosen to be in Canada. It's that simple. By not being in Canada, I am insufficiently Canadian. <laughs> Um, and of course, as for my Frenchness, <laughs> like you know, c come out, come off it. I, you know, I was talking to a young poet uh, friend whose whose uh, father is Irish and whose m mother is French. She's you know she's American largely, although she was born in Ireland. And uh, and she said, I said, do you ever think of going back to live in Ireland? And she said, oh. You know, always growing up, I wanted to get out of Ireland, you know, until we came to America. I always wanted, you know, to get out. And I said, um, 
I said, oh, well, where'd you want to go? And she said, well, of course, I, I wanted to go to France because I knew from my mother that France was way better than Ireland. <laughs> and then when we came to America, I knew that France was way better than America, too. Um, she said, but then the terrible thing is, you know, I go to France and they won't have me. They don't want me. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I will never be French. And so that's the, that's, that's the sort of um, gambit that the French set up, which is, you know, we are the best. You are not one of us. So sorry. Um, and um, I assume they do that, you know, even, even, I mean, I know they did that. My father was Pianois. He was French from North Africa. And I know that uh, he felt that way about France, which is one reason why he left. So, um, so I think they're pretty good at doing that. But it means that, you know, by default, I am America, American because it is the place that, that will, will not shake a finger at me and say, you're, you're not American enough. Oh, well, thank you very much for joining me.